Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. And for more information, go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com. Today, we're going to talk about a subject that at the, in the beginning is going to sound a little bit like a kind of a strategic planning session for a business, and that's not what this is at all. But I want to talk about something that came up in a meeting last week that I attended with some really smart educators that I have the privilege of working with, and that is value proposition. The value proposition in corporate America, well, first of all, in corporate America, one of, one of the keys to being successful in any business, small business or, or large, is differentiation, as you know. And th- there's a lot we could talk about there, but suffice it to say that this, this is really what we, what we do well that makes us distinct. And we don't have to be unique, but, but just we have to do it well and have to be able to do it at a good price and, and so on. So, some people call this what we do well, our value proposition. It's really an answer to the question, what do you get as a client when you spend your time and money with us? specifically your money, but also your time. What are the needs met or or said differently, benefits received from doing this with us? And I'm going to be talking to another group of educators that I work with, a broader group soon, and I'm going to ask this question. I'm going to ask, really, what do parents get when they when they send their students to or what do students get when they go to this school when they when they choose this particular school and so today my thoughts are really not just for parents not just for educators for individuals as well and i, I want to talk about a broader subject and that is really what is a christian worldview and what can we all do to advance a Christian worldview in ourselves and in other people. So by way of background, I spend a lot of time and have spent a lot of time in recent years fretting over this issue that goes something like this. Are we really preparing students well? Are we preparing young people? And I even went through this. We even went through this in our household. Is our daughter well prepared to kind of go out into the world, to go to a a large public university where she is in a PhD program today? But when she was undergrad, have we prepared her? Is she prepared? Has God prepared her well enough for, for this endeavor, for this undertaking? And we often talk about, and you've seen this from apologetics ministries, you know, are, are our young people prepared? Uh, 70% of them sort of seem to, based on surveys, fall out of the faith sometime in their young adulthood. And so I want to discuss, perhaps counterintuitively, that our entire way of looking at this could be flawed, and you'll hear me say this from time to time, 
This is not about putting on lenses that are better. You'll hear people talk about Christian worldview in terms of, oh, you've just got to grab the right lenses and put them on. Take off the bad lenses with the bad vision, with the bad view of the world, and put on a a better view of the world. And that's somewhat helpful. There are ministries that sort of focus on that. And and that that is somewhat helpful, but I think it's woefully incomplete. Much has been written about human depravity, and we've talked here at Relentless Truth about our sin, the fact that we are we are born sinners. I want to read today Psalm fifty-one. It's really interesting that it's it's really David's prayer after his encounter with Bathsheba, and as you know, he he ordered the pushing of her husband to the front lines to be killed. And so this is really after David's adultery and murder, sins of adultery and murder. And listen to what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Now this is, this is Psalm 51, verse 1. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth." In the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, one of the things that I think about a lot in education, and I think this works for all of us even in our homes to to maybe a, a lesser degree, but in Christian education in particular, or just education more broadly, I do wonder about this this value proposition and why families choose either homeschooling or Christian education in particular. But we can make this more broad and and say why why do we embrace Christianity broadly? Why do people identify even as Christians? So if we go back to value proposition and you think about all the reasons that in a Christian school context that, that people are there or in a homeschool context, or the reasons for people to do these things or, or the reasons people identify as Christian, they, they are numerous, aren't they? And I would propose this sort of this, it's a theory because I haven't, I don't think we've surveyed very much on this topic, but a lot of people would would say, "Well, I, I I'd like to have a Christ centered education, or I, or I want to have a 
a Christ-centered life, when in fact, we don't always mean exactly the same thing. And, and then there are other reasons, particularly in Christian education and homeschooling, there are other reasons for wanting to be there, wanting to go down that path as parents. Sometimes it's safety. Sometimes it's, I want them to be around other kids who are, who are like-minded, or I want them to have a certain opportunity, or I like the small class sizes, or I like the fact that they won't be around as many drugs. Or with homeschooling, I, I, I like the impact on the family. I like the family-centered nature of this. The, and, and I'm leaving out lots of reasons that you and your family might have for, for choosing these options or that even you individually might have for deciding to identify as a Christian. But interestingly, we say culturally in Christian education, that our objective, our mission, our value proposition is that we not only teach from the perspective of a Christian worldview, but we we want to impart this Christian worldview in our students. And you as parents might have that objective with your children, with your young people, with your students. And yet, so these, these two things don't align. If you if you ask the student why they're there or why they're being homeschooled, sometimes you get a little bit of a different answer. So the 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 objective that we have sometimes in Christian education, both in the home and at school and otherwise, is not consistent with our perceived value proposition. And I think there's a reason for that, and I think it's found here in Psalm 51. And I just want to walk through this quickly because here's what we see. We talk on Relentless Truth a lot about who God is and who man is. And we get to see that so clearly. You can see in the beginning, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This is what confession and repentance look like. David is turning from his sin. David has humbled himself. He's not saying, I've got this. He's turning and saying, I need you, Lord. And then he says in verse three, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I'm thinking about this all the time. And he acknowledges, I didn't just hurt myself. This isn't about self-help. In verse four, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin, our sin, is an affront To God, it has impact on us for sure. Notice how David is acknowledging right here that he is not the center of this story. He is not the hero here. And then he says, I was brought forth in iniquity. He acknowledges in verse five of Psalm 51 that he was born a sinner, born in sin. Then in verse six, watch this. You delight in truth in the inward being. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. He's saying, he's talking about God now. He pivots and he says that God is truthful. Truthful. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God is wise. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. He's saying God is a purifying God. He goes on to say, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So God is a truthful 
wise, purifying God. And then in verse 8, watch what he asks for. Let me hear joy and gladness. God is a joy-imparting God. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God is a God who causes rejoicing. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. God is a cleansing God. He's also set apart. He's also holy. Hide your face from my sins. David recognizes that God and sin don't go together. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now this, verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. You've probably heard this, seen this in social media posts, and it's beautiful. Create in me a clean heart, O God. What's interesting about this is, yes, God is a creating God. This word create is the same word used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. This word create is exactly that word. And in Genesis 1.1, he's talking, we're talking about creation out of nothing. We often think, and if you're a student of philosophy, you've heard this, that God wound the world up and kind of let it go, kind of put some laws in place, some rules in place, but his, his creative act happened in Genesis. Whether we agree on how many days and you know how long that period was, was it six literal days and so on, that's a conversation for another day. But, but we think of his creative act of just, just happening. He wound the world up. He put some laws in place. The world is subject to those laws, but, but no. David acknowledges that God is a creating God. God is a creative God years, many years, after he created the world, and the Hebrew word is exactly the same word. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's a renewing God. Think about this, folks. Create in me a clean heart. Your act of creation can create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew. God is a creating and renewing God. Renew a right spirit within me. So much to say there, but what a beautiful promise. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. God is an imminent God. He is with us, lovingly with us. And then verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God is a restoring God, He is a joy-imparting God, and he upholds us. He's a sustaining God. Restore to me the joy of whose salvation? Your salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to God. God is a sustaining and restoring God. So, I think about this and I go to a familiar passage that you hear me talk about a lot here and you will hear me talk about a lot in the future. And I'll I'll just say this, if you, I know you probably can't do it right now, but if you just kind of make a mental note to go read Romans chapter three, Romans chapter eight, Romans chapter 12, you'll see the beauty of this Psalm in the words of Paul. 
I want to talk again about Romans 12, 1 and 2. I sometimes reference this as the summer camp, Christian camp verses, because we've all heard so many lessons on this. It's hard to even hear the words. I appeal to you, Paul says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, this is verse 2 of Romans 12, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I think the parallel here is really this. David is talking about repentance and turning to God. Paul, in Romans 12, is talking about precisely the same thing because of who God is. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, I beg you, beseech you, urge you, compel you is the idea in that word appeal. Therefore, because of everything I've just said in Romans 1 through 11, this beautiful gospel, then he says, brothers, he's, that's not a gender specific reference. That is a reference to kinspeople, by the mercies of God, a reference to the gospel, God's beautiful mercies toward us that he's talked about in the first 11 chapters. And again, if you'd like the overview, go to chapter three and chapter eight, but read all of it. Beautiful truth in all of those chapters to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That has the idea of the whole person. And this would have freaked out the audience who received this letter because this this notion of a living sacrifice is an oxymoron, isn't it? All sacrifices they would have known to this point are dead. So this notion of living sacrifice is a very clever way to say it. Sacrifice yourself completely. Present your entire person as a complete sacrifice, holy, set apart, and acceptable, that is approved, to God which is, your English Standard Version says, spiritual worship, reasonable service, is just reasonable to do, is the idea. And then we forget this part in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. That has has the idea of being conformed to the world's pattern of thinking. Now, I don't want to criticize those teachers that poured into us when we were younger, all of us, and pastors who've preached on this, but what I heard many times was, don't be like the world. If the world zigs, you zag. Be different from the world. Even sometimes I heard, live in a bubble. Be isolated. And what Paul is talking about here, and I also heard, by the way, lots of lessons on when you see this phrase, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. heard Lessons on, on sexual purity. And that's certainly implied here, for sure. But there's a bigger point Paul's making when he says, do not be conformed to this world. He's talking about the world's pattern of thinking, and we can prove that by reading the rest of the verse. But be transformed. That has the idea of a metamorphosis. It's the, the Greek word used as a word for metamorphosis. It's become a completely new creature And how do we do that? And how do I know he's talking about our minds, our way of thinking? He says, by the renewal of your mind. 
that has the idea of a, of a renovation of your mind. If you're a fan of these home renovation shows, these HGTV type shows, you're thinking, you should think here when you see this word renewal about a remodeling, but it's not just painting the house. It's stripping it down to the foundation and rebuilding it. That word transformed, it has the idea of metamorphosis, as I said, and it, it is becoming a, a completely new creature by the renewing, by the renovation of your mind, learning a new way of thinking that by testing you may discern so that you may get through trials, you may learn discernment, you may learn how to discern what is the will of God, that is who God really is. What amazing promises here. Now I want to go back. I want to go back to Psalm 51 and I want I want to just read one more verse. So so we've talked about David's repentance and it's beautiful, isn't it? And we've talked about who God is. We we've used words like truthful, wise, holy, purifying, a joy imparting God, a cleansing God, a creating God, a renewing God talked about the fact that God is the same, this word create is the same creating God who created the world in Genesis 1.1. Talked about the fact that God is imminent, he's with us in verse 11 of Psalm 51. And then in verse 12, we talked about the fact that God is a sustaining and restoring God. Look, just listen to those words. Joy imparting, cleansing, creating, imminent, with us, sustaining Restoring, truthful, wise, and purifying. What an amazing Lord. But then watch what happens in verse 13. David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Now, that expression, then I will teach, has the idea of poking an ox with a rod with a stick, directing an animal in the right direction by poking it, goading it with a rod. Isn't that something? Then, after I've repented and God has restored me, David is saying, only then will I be able to, will I teach transgressors, that is, other sinners, your ways, and sinners will return to you. Now, I don't want to stretch this scripture. I don't want to be guilty of eisegesis that is reading into this scripture, this beautiful scripture. But here's what he's saying. He's saying that it is God who does the work. Sinners will return to you. But God will use me, David, use us, After we've repented and he's restored us, he's done his work in us, only then will we teach transgressors your ways. Will God use us to reveal this to transgressors, to reveal to transgressors the error of their ways? This is a beautiful promise. It's one that I think as teachers, as parents, even as young people, that we can cling to. This business of imparting 
a Christian worldview is a beautiful thing. It's something that happens because of God's work in our life. Pedagogy, methods, educational methods, parenting books that you've read, principles that you've learned are certainly helpful. Curriculum is helpful in school. But this is God who, this is the way God works. This doesn't say I will then be clever and persuade people and use smoke and mirrors and beautiful music and a a really cool appeal. This says after I've repented and God has done his work in me, he will use me, David says, to teach transgressors God's ways. I think this is the key. It is focusing on who God is and how he works in us when we repent. This is, in Psalm 51, this is the thing we've talked about that Paul has talked about in Romans. And that is the pattern is to confess, to repent, to turn from our sin, and to believe, to rest in him. David is clearly relying on God and who he is to accomplish all of these things in his life. And then he says, only when God accomplishes those things will I be able to teach transgressors your ways. I want to use just a a woefully inadequate analogy. If you play sports, whether you do or not, if you enjoy sports, or even I know people who watch golf on television who've never held a golf club in their hands before because it's kind of cool to watch. But if you look at golf, for example, this environment that we're talking about, this education environment, this this focusing on who God is reminds me of the way professional golfers look at us amateurs. And it's it's really interesting, and you'll hear me talk about this from time to time. I've had the pleasure of playing rounds of golf with some really good golfers, including a few who have been on tour and were on tour at the time on the PGA Tour and on the Champions Tour, Senior Tour. And I've noticed something about them, and I've noticed in a lot of literature that I've read on golf that the really good golfer doesn't make it all complicated, have all kinds of swing gadgets typically, and doesn't rush out and buy new clubs every other day and all of that. They tend to focus on just a few basic thoughts. You can't really think about all those things while hitting a golf ball. But one thing that they say about us amateurs is we tend to think about everything but the thoughts that we should have as we're over a ball. I'll give you an example. If you've never been on a golf course, you can't appreciate this, but a lot of shots, a lot of times you have to hit the ball, you have to hit it over water or over a bunker full of sand or near a wooded area. And sometimes you think, most of the times, time you think, before hitting the shot, I don't want to do the following. I've got to be sure I don't hit it in the water. I can't hit it over to the right side because it'll be lost in the woods. What the pro thinks, what the professional thinks is, you see that pin over there? I'm going to land it on the green right there. I'm going to land it six yards onto the green and four yards from the left, and that is my target. And the thing they think about as they stand over that ball waiting to pull the club back is target, 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 the object of the shot. And they'll also say, whether they've just hit the best shot of their lives or the worst, they obsess over the target on the next shot. 
They don't think about what just happened. They don't think about what's going to happen down the road. They don't think about their score. They focus on the object. I know this is woefully inadequate, but just as an analogy, but just imagine the difference we would experience if we followed what David is saying here and what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2 when we focused on the object of our faith. Now, the problem with this is we can't glorify him if we don't know him. I want to encourage us to be consumed with who he is, be consumed with his word, be consumed with the study of scripture. It is, after all, it is, after all, his overwhelming love for us that drew us to him in the first place. This is what it means to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Students will experience God's grace in their lives. Our young people, our children, our families will experience God's grace in our lives as we do this, as we turn to him in repentance and then rely on who he is to sustain us. This is a beautiful promise. I hope this has been helpful to you. We have moved very quickly through a number of profound truths, but I am overwhelmed when I think about imparting a Christian worldview. I often hear people say, and I've been guilty of this myself many times, what are we doing wrong if we only had better methodology, better pedagogy, better curriculum, more sessions of this and that, and some of those things are very helpful. But really, What David is teaching us here is what we need to focus on, and that is our own personal repentance because he says again that he'll create in us a new heart. He'll restore us to the joy of his salvation, and then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. What a beautiful promise. Thank you for joining me again. I am grateful for you. I would truly appreciate it if you would like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. Please go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com, for more information. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.